Good morning. My name is Luke Smith. I'm a pastor over at Rincon Mountain Presbyterian Church on the east side, and I'm happy to give Steve a, a break this morning. And so I bring you greetings from Rincon Mountain. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to first, or excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 23. Second Samuel 23. We'll be reading the first seven verses. Um, before we do that, I just want to ask you a question that you've probably been asked very recently. What do you want most for Christmas? What do you want most for Christmas? The answer to that will probably um, communicate what you think really matters most. What is most important to you? That's what we want to focus on in this Christmas season, right? The things that are most important to us. The problem, though, is that uh, our lives get in the way. Our cluttered lives get in the way. They're already cluttered, and then they become more cluttered at this time of year. Right? Our, our schedules are very, very busy, and then what happens? We have more project deadlines. We have more recitals to go to, more exams to take. Right? We have more parties to attend. We spend more time in the kitchen, more time eating, more games to watch. Our homes are already cluttered, and then what do we do? We spend hours on end putting up decorations and garland and stringing up lights, and then we take trees and put them inside our homes like madmen. <laughs> And, and just like every year, we, we vow, hey, we're going to lead a simpler life this year. But it never happens. This time a year ago, I read an article about how to get that simpler life. And one of the, the strategies it, it mentioned was to go to your bookshelf and to rake off all the books into the floor. And then as you're going to put them back, take them one by one and look at them and ask yourself the question, does this really matter to me? Is this important? What what is most important? And the reason I say that is because our text this morning uh, recounts the last words of David. Here David is, King David, on his deathbed, and he is wanting to communicate what is most important to his family, the line of descendants that are going to come after him, the, the people of God, the people whose lives are very cluttered. But he wants to say, look, this is the most important thing that you need to know, that you need to hang on to. So let's read 2 Samuel 23, starting in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. For the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Are there any sad Christmas songs? Do you know of any sad Christmas songs? I was trying to think of this. Even growing up, growing up in the South, I heard a lot on the radio, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. 
Right, Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house Christmas Eve. Right, Grandma is dead. And yet it ends with, with some hope. But, you know, you can say there's no such thing as Santa, but for me and Grandpa, we believe. Right? There, there are no sad songs. It's all happy songs. It's, it's a time of joy. It, it, you see the celebrations. You partake in the festivities. Right? You hear the talk of joy and comfort and peace. And sometimes we don't feel that. Because our world, our lives look so broken. And when we, we read Scripture, the Bible tells us that our world is broken. Our lives are broken. We say, yes, we totally agree with that because we experience it every single day. And we call out, Lord, would you make this right? Make this right. I want something better. Thomas Akempis, who wrote The Imitation of Christ many, many, many centuries ago, he said, and truly, to live in this world is but misery. And the more spiritual a man would be, the more painful it is for him to live. The more plainly he feels the defects of man's corruption. The great theologian Bob Dylan got it. <laughs> he said, broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people speak, sleeping on broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. It feels like you're choking. Everything is broken. Do you feel that? Do you experience that? Even if you're not a Christian, you may not be able to say that everything looks broken, but you, you do call out for someone to make this right. I want something better than this, right? But the message of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, is that there is something better. That God has provided for a Messiah who would make things right, who would be a king to bring us peace. This is what you see throughout the entire of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's going to be a king to bring us peace, who will keep covenant. He'll be a covenant keeper who will bring us the surety of safety and security with God forever, and he will deliver us from oppression. That's what is promised to counter the rebellion of Adam's sin, that God himself, by his own hand, would make things right for us. And so our expectations of what God has promised, it really informs how we would receive what He gives us. And so He's promised us a person. He's promised us a Redeemer, a Messiah. And so our expectations of who God has promised informs how we would receive that one that He has given to us, Jesus. And it's very interesting that in the last words of David here recounted for us, the very first of his last words are actually the words of not David, but of the Lord. Did you notice that? That the Lord is speaking through David. He's giving this oracle. And whenever you see that word oracle, it's, it means an utterance from God, that God speaks through men. And what God is typically doing is he's signaling that he is about to do something very important that you need to pay attention to, that will be life to you. And the picture that we get in verses 3 and verses 4 is that of a king. And the Lord is not speaking about David here. Why? Because one, um, 
God is not taking the very last days of David's life to tell the people, look how awesome David was. And, and look how great your life was under David. Right? He's giving this oracle about one who will come. Also, David is on his deathbed. Right? He's not talking about David. But what God says is that there is a king who will reign in such a way with justice and perfect reverence for God, unlike David, unlike any other king that the world has ever known, that for the people under his reign, it will be as though the darkness that they experience will be pushed back by the dawning of the sun, that light will reign and that there's no clouds that would darken their skies, and there's green grass sprouting up everywhere in a very, what looks like a desolate place, kind of like Tucson. It's a picture of utter peace. The only thing he's leaving out is like ice cream and cake, right? It's peace. This is what the prophet spoke about, the coming Messiah, who would come from the line of David. This is what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 33. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Zechariah spoke of this son of David. Zechariah 6, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And you hear this echoed in 2 Samuel 7, which we read a little bit earlier. And the, the, the fuller picture of that is we see that the covenant that God made with David uh, promised uh, one who would come to bring complete rest from our enemies. So what's the expectation of this one who's going to come from David? He's going to be a king to bring real peace. And we, we see this even going all the way back to Genesis 49 at the last words of Jacob. Jacob gathers his 12 sons together, right, from whom the 12 tribes come. He gathers them together and he says, look, this is what is going to happen in the last days. Meaning this is what is going to happen in the fullness of time, even at the culmination of history, that there is, a, there is one who will come from Judah and the scepter will be in his hand. The scepter will not depart from Judah and all nations, all peoples will obey him. He's going to be one that would reign in peace. And then that is echoed in Numbers 24. It's a really interesting place. If you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 24, I'm just going to warn you, we're going to be bouncing around a lot, make you work a little bit this morning. Numbers 24, uh, here you have uh, the Exodus community, the Israelites who are facing uh, the Moabites. And there's this their leader named Balak, and Balak wants to heap curses upon Israel. Right, he wants to see Israel utterly destroyed. And so Balak gets his seer, this diviner, this priestly figure named Balaam, to go utter curses against Israel. And every single time that Balaam tries to utter a curse, the Lord speaks through him and he proclaims a blessing upon them. He does it time and time and time again. Right? And this is the, again, this is Balaam, who is an enemy of God, right? He's not a God fear, and the Lord is speaking through him. This is Numbers 24, starting in verse 15. 
This is another oracle from God. Okay? The Lord is saying, I'm about to do something. You need to pay attention to this. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sayar also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Did you hear it? There's one who will be a king that will reign, and he will bring utter peace that all the nations will be utterly destroyed. And so that is the expectation. You're looking for, for this one that would bring real peace. And so you get to this leader, Joshua, and, and under his leadership, there's the nations aren't completely destroyed, right? And, and, and throughout the time of the judges, the nations aren't completely destroyed. And so they go under their, their, uh, their captivity, their slavery. And then you get to David. David comes from the line of Judah. Right, A scepter is in his hand. He is king. He has dominion. And then he kicks some serious tail. He really lays it on the Edomites, the Moabites, the Amalekites. And guess what? He doesn't utterly destroy them. He's not the Messiah. Right? David knows that he's not the Messiah. And then, so is it Jesus? Jesus comes from the line of Judah, and a lot of Jewish scholars say, no, it can't be Jesus because he's supposed to utterly destroy his enemies. And Jesus comes 2,000 years ago, and he doesn't pick up a sword. We're expecting someone who's going to kick tail. And Jesus comes, meek, mild, humble. So Jesus isn't that son of David, is he? Well, no, He is. And we know that in the fullness of time that Jesus is that one whom all nations, even Isaiah 45 prophesies this, that, that all, of nation, all the nations, all of His enemies will be made His footstool. And we see that, uh, that is echoed in Philippians 2. Paul says that, that Christ uh, became man, that the Son of God became man, stooped low, humbled Himself, took on flesh so that He would die and He would be raised up and that all the nations would be made of His footstool. And we see that in Revelation. But listen, the kind of peace that Jesus brings goes beyond uh, the peace between warring parties physically in this world. It's a, it's a greater peace. It's a larger work of peace. Look, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, again, another... Famous Christmas passage, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. This is the, the promise of the one who's going to come, the son of David. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see the connection to our passage? Just like 2 Samuel 23, Isaiah paints this picture of darkness that is contrasted to the emergence of light that would shine on the people. And when the Bible uses that kind of language, which it does quite often, it should lead us to think of a transformative, creative work that only God can bring about. And after all, this one who is promised, the son of David, is Emmanuel, God with us. The kind of darkness that is also pictured by Isaiah, it goes beyond something physical. It goes far deeper than any darkness that can be brought on by the invasion of of an enemy from any physical enemy, but it speaks towards the inward condition of you and I, the condition of people's hearts, the plight of sin and misery. And then just like 2 Samuel 23, Isaiah points to a royal figure, one who would reign with justice and righteousness, but he also has a priestly role. In verse 6, the, the more wooden translation is one who would be a consecrated prince of peace. And that peace that he brings, as, as one commentator said, that he, it goes beyond the quieting of warfare, but relates to the establishment of public order that is marked by righteousness and justice that quenches disorder, rebellion, and evil. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6? That our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Right? Your enemy, your real enemy, is not your noisy next door neighbor or your arrogant boss or the federal government. The battle is against our enemy of sin and Satan and death. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that our enemy goes around prowling like a lion seeking someone to devour. That is the threat to our peace. And you know it experientially. I know it. We're sinful people. But the Son of David, Jesus, came to reign so that we could have peace from our real enemy. And such a reign of everlasting and reconciling peace is the purpose of His birth. He brings a peace between God and sinful men with sinful hearts. He's a king that brings peace. He's also a covenant keeper. The covenant promises surety. It's a surety of safety and security. Look at 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. David says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And then the covenant made with David from 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So when our God makes His covenant promise, His people should expect the surety of safety, of security forever. And this is what the Israelites expected when they returned from exile. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah 4. Here you have a group of people who are coming out of exile in Babylon after being conquered three different times. And they have returned home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, which they did. 
And now they're going to rebuild uh, the walls of uh, Jerusalem, the walls of the city. But they have an enemy uh, who is threatening to stop the work. They have an enemy who is threatening to wipe them out. This is what Nehemiah 4 verse 10 says. Because, look, these people, they know that if this enemy, if, if this enemy destroys them, if they destroy Israel, if they destroy Judah that have come out of exile, then not only are they toast, but the covenant promises of God, surely they can't still remain, right? If, if there's no Judah, how can one from Judah come? Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places I stationed the people by their clans with their swords their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. These people were afraid. They were afraid that they couldn't complete the work of rebuilding the wall. If you go back to, to chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you see that these people didn't have the skills of construction and architecture. They were afraid of their enemy. They were afraid that they were going to get wiped out. And look, they weren't warriors. Yeah, they had weapons, but they weren't trained. They were coming out of exile. And if you think about it, when things are going really well for you, you might have the kind of faith um, of Nehemiah that says, remember the Lord, He was great and awesome, right? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. But what happens when you face hardship? What happens when there's uncertainty? What happens when you think your job may be up in the air? When you get sick? When your marriage is in trouble? What about when you keep going back to those same sins over and over and over again? Those darling sins. How about those times? There are really two options. You can either despair or you can trust in the promises of God. Look, these people in Nehemiah, they could have, they could have rested in the promises of God because they knew the covenant, right? They knew that they had the surety of security forever in Him, but instead they are resting more in getting the wall built. Why? Because that's their security blanket. It is literally their security, right? We're, I'm sure they're thinking, we're going to build this thing 20 feet higher, 20 feet thicker, so this doesn't happen again, so we don't get destroyed, so we don't get taken off again. The, the word that is used... So many times in Nehemiah, especially in Nehemiah chapter 3, is this word repair. That as these people rebuilt the wall, it says that this person stood next to that person, and then they repaired this section of the wall. And then they stood next to these people, and they repaired this section of the wall. And when we hear that word repair, we think, ah, oh, it means to bring back to the way it was before. But that's not what the word means. Not, not in Nehemiah. The word means to make stand strong. To make stand firm even in the face of opposition. 
You see, there's a larger work of restoration that's being done. The wall just doesn't need to be restored, but the people need to be restored. Why do they need to be restored? It's because they have sinned against the Lord time and time again, generation after generation after generation. That's why they were conquered. That's why they were taken into exile. The sin of the people have left everything in ruins. That's what sin does. It leaves your life in ruins. And sure, they're going to rebuild, but it's not going to be the same as it was before. They're going to rebuild the wall, but it's not going to be the same. You know, most of the materials that they're using to rebuild the wall is the rubble. That's why it says in in, in Nehemiah chapter 4 that there's too much rubble. These people are going to have their lives rebuilt, but are they going to be the same? Their lives feel like rubble. But something does remain the same. And that is that this Lord, their Lord, is a God who is intent on restoring His people despite their sin. That is what the Lord speaks to us in His covenant. And He let them rebuild. He he let them stay safe. They defeated their enemy. The Lord defeated their enemy for them. They didn't have the skill. They had to rely on Him. Listen to the one uh, about the one from David who would ultimately keep this covenant and, and give us a surety of security and safety. This is what Jeremiah 30 says. Their prince shall be one of themselves, right? In the flesh. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Why on earth would God do that? It's because He is good. His steadfast love endures forever in His faithfulness to all generations. Look, the one that we celebrate here in Advent, Jesus, He is that Son of David. That even though he was, he was fully God, He humbled Himself. He took on flesh. He stooped low and did the work of restoration that you and I so desperately need. It's restoring us to right relationship with God on account of sin. And that same Jesus the, of the Lion of Judah took the cross on His back and He was driven outside these same city walls built with these same hands so that these same people and people like you and me could be declared citizens of a greater city. United together by His blood that He shed on the cross for us. He has repaired us. Jesus repaired us. He's made us strong. He's made us to stand firm in the face of all opposition, the opposition of sin and death and hell, because He has restored what was torn down down in Adam's rebellion. And we are His people, and He is our God. That's who this Jesus is. That's who the Son of David is. He's a king who keeps peace. He he keeps covenant to bring us that surety of safety and security. And he's a savior who delivers. Look back at 2 Samuel 23, verse 5. David says, For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? You know that word there for help is uh, the Hebrew word yesha. I don't like to throw around Hebrew that much. Um, But it's the word yesha. It means salvation. Or deliverance. It's where we get Yeshua from. Jesus. 
This God saves. He delivers. You know, a struggle that God's people have always had throughout their history is focusing more on what they expect to be delivered to rather than focusing on what they were delivered from. The Exodus community, they struggled with this. God delivered them from the hands of Egypt, from their slavery, from the house of bondage. He led them across uh, the Red Sea, right? Defeated the Egyptians. They get to the other side and they start complaining. Lord, have you brought us out of Egypt to make us starve? And then as I was taught in Sunday school, God gives them magic food, right? Food that comes out of nowhere, bread just lying on the ground and it fills them up every single day. And then they, that's not good enough. They start complaining. Well, you know, you promised us even more than this. We were waiting to get to the promised land and now we're out here. We just get bread that you provide magically from your own hands. We want meat. So he gives them meat. And then they, it's still not good enough. They complain even more. We didn't expect this. We expected more. Lord, we followed you all the way out here. Now we're thirsty. And then he provides water out of a rock that feeds two million people and all their livestock. And they still complain. Right, we followed you, but this is not what we expected. But God has delivered them from the superpower of the world, from 400 years of slavery, even though they constantly sin against Him, even immediately after He saves them. Deuteronomy 9, God says, Look, I'm going to send you to this land of promise. I'm going to give this to you, but it's not because of your righteousness. You don't have any. It's because of mine. The disciples struggled with this. You turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. The James and John, man, they are a pair. James and John are, um, are part of this really class of society that are called the undesirables. They're, um, they want to kick this kind of pitiful existence of theirs. They, you have the emperor at the top and then the undesirables at the bottom, kind of the peasant class. And uh, they're at the bottom of the cultural food chain. They want glory now. They follow Jesus, right? Lord, we have followed you. We've obeyed you. Um, we have been at your, your beck, every beck and call. And now we want something. And they say, Lord, would you, would you do something for us? And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, we want glory. We want to set at your right hand and your left hand in glory. And he says, what are y'all smoking? Like, you, you don't get it because... You don't understand what you're asking because you really don't get yet why I have come. I have come to save you. I've come to deliver you from sin. I'm going to drink a cup of wrath that you cannot drink. And they say, no, no, we totally can. They're ignorant. And then Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, He says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. I am ransoming you from sin. I am paying your debt with my life and with my death, with my own body and blood. I am doing that for you. And then the very next scene, you have another undesirable, even more undesirable than James and John, because at least they could have a job. He's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. He's absolutely helpless. Look at verse 47, Mark 10, 47. And when he heard, Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was coming, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
James and John want glory. And Bartimaeus knows his helplessness. He wants mercy. He cries out to the Son of David. He gets why the Son of David has come. It's to free him from real oppression. Yeah, he wants his blindness taken away, but he asks for mercy. Mercy. He knows that his oppression that he is under can only be, be cured. He can only be freed from that by a mercy that comes from the God of the universe in the flesh. This is what the prophet Ezekiel spoke. Ezekiel 37 about this one, the son of David, who would come to free us. He said, The people shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Do you see the connection with all of these characteristics of the son of David that we have in our text? That the one who is coming, that comes from the line of David, from the line of Judah, will be a king to establish real peace. He'll keep covenant and, and bring us the surety of safety and security and deliver us. God is saying in these last words of David, be on the lookout for one that I am giving you who will take away sin. He's going to take away sin. It means when the son of David reigns, when he has dominion, it means that sin no longer has dominion. You know, when we talk about sin, we we talk about uh, the the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Uh, Paul speaks to this very eloquently in Romans 8. He says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The penalty has been taken away because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The power has been taken away. Romans 6, Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, the dominion of sin has been taken care of in Jesus, in His work of salvation. And yet we still face the presence of sin. In this life we face its presence. And that's why he says in verse 12, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." And because we wrestle with the presence of sin... That's why we hear the songs of hope at Christmas, and we may not feel the hope. But we experience the pain of brokenness. But listen, pain and hope are not mutually exclusive. Jesus even Himself says in in the Gospel of John, He says, you will face trials, you will face tribulation, you will face temptation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. But honestly, here's the question. You've asked this, I've asked this. We say, Lord, if you really did care for us, why don't you just take care of the presence of sin? Why don't you just take it away? I know sin doesn't have dominion. There's no penalty against me. But Lord, if if I'm facing the presence of sin, if I am struggling with sin in my life, it sure does feel like it has dominion. Do you feel that? Look, here's the answer to that question. I don't know. How about honesty? (laughs) 
I don't know. And that's trying to get in the mind of God. But here's what we know the, the answer is not. It's not because God doesn't care for you. The presence of sin might not feel like God cares for you, but if He didn't care for us, would He have given of Himself? Would the God of the universe have taken on flesh and be humiliated and live a perfect life, straying from temptation, pushing it back, light pushing back the darkness? Would He have gone to the cross Would he have been raised again to life for you if he didn't care for you? The incarnation of Jesus shows that God cares for us. This is what the Apostle John writes. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know him as us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him because He cared enough to not just come and die for us, but to leave us the Holy Spirit. To remove that remnant sin. To do the work of keep pointing us back to the cross, pointing us back to the Son of David, Jesus And somehow, according to His good providence, as we wrestle with temptation, as we fight against sin, as we lean on Christ, and as we are sanctified by the Spirit in Christ, that it causes us to give Him more glory and for us to enjoy Him even more. If you believe, if you know that He cares for you because He gave Himself up for you, Do you trust Him that He knows what He's doing? That's the real question. Do you trust Him? One writer said this about the work of Jesus. He said, We no longer live in the realm of sin, but under its its reign and practical dominion. We have died to sin. We indeed, indeed do sin, and even our best deeds are stained with sin, but our attitude toward it is essentially different from that of an unbeliever. We succumb to temptations either from our own evil desires or from the world or the devil, but this is different from a settled disposition. The great Puritan John Owen, he said, Our sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. If sin no longer is a pleasure that we delight in, and I hope that is true for you, If you don't delight in sin, then what does delight us? Look back again at the words of David. Verse 5, For for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? The word there for desire is the word delight. Let me just ask a question. What is your first response to knowing the salvation that you've been given in Jesus? What's your first response? Is it obedience? Obedience is a very good thing, is it not? <laughs> right? If you're a Christian, you say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm less angry than I used to be, right? I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm praying uh, with my family. I'm raising my children uh, in, in a Christian manner in the way that they should go so that they will never depart from it when they are older, right? I'm studying God's Word. And man, I, I just... I feel really good because I know what Christ did for me and now, so I'm now obeying for Him. I am, I'm, I'm doing this for God. 
Do you see the subtlety of the deception in that? I'm doing this for God. Let me, let me just tell you something. God doesn't need us to do anything for Him. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't obey. <laughs> right? Obedience is good. What I'm saying is that He wants us to delight in Him first as He delights in us. David says in Psalm 18, he says, The Lord has rescued me. I was helpless and He had mercy and rescued me because He delighted in me. Do you delight in the Lord? That has to come first. Delight is a hard thing to express, probably because the love of God feels really ineffable. It's hard to, to communicate. That's why we have worship every week and, and prayer groups and Bible study. And that's why we have art and song and poetry, right? Because and, and that's why we're creatures of eternity. Because there's not enough mediums, there's not enough time for us to declare and give back to God our thanks of love, our offering of love to Him for who He is for us in Jesus. Do you delight in Him? Delight doesn't have a to-do list. But delighting in the Lord, it drives you to do something. It drives you to obedience. If delight in Jesus Christ, the Son of David, does not precede your obedience, then your obedience will simply be for your own self-interest. If you don't grab a hold of Jesus, you end up grabbing a hold of something that is worthless. That's what David talks about in verses 6 and 7. It's like grabbing hold of thorns are going to be thrown into the fire. Grab hold of Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. He is what you and I need most this Christmas. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. The Son of God cares for you. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord Jesus, we do lean on You. We rest in You. Lord, we trust that You do know what You're doing, that, Lord, You are doing the good work through Your Spirit of removing that remnant sin, and it's because You have defeated the dominion of sin in us. Lord, we pray that You would cause us to delight in You, that You would cause our delight, our desire of You to prosper because of Your work as King to bring us peace, your work as covenant keeper that would give us that surety of security and safety in you. That you have delivered us from, from the oppression of sin. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all glory. In your name we pray. Amen.